There was an old fella. He couldn't come down for his bag of food. It took him a long time to come to the door, and then I realized the old fellow only had one leg, and he was late for his food delivery, so he brought us in, and we had coffee with him, and it was just like stepping into my dad's apartment, but probably a tenth the size of dad's apartment. He had a little chair on a little worn-out linoleum floor, and all of his medicine was on the table, and he had a little view out the window. It was then that I realized how little these people have and how it's been taken away from them. They don't live in big fancy places like we live. They live very humbly. And I remember walking in and the front door being a big metal door and then insulation all over to keep the winter out because they do have cold winters. The old fellow was all smiles and so happy and so welcoming. It wasn't like strangers coming in. It was just like old friends would come in and he was a real nice man. It was just an honor to be able to help him. I'm Peter McCulley. Daryl Mackay of Vancouver Island has made four trips to the Ukraine and is now raising money to send stretchers overseas to help transport the wounded. Mackay talks about the need for stretchers, the conflict, and the resolve of Ukrainians on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Daryl. Thanks a lot for taking an interest. Daryl, you're a retired civil engineer with a camera, so kind of have camera while travel the world, I guess. Yeah, I've been doing photography in Africa, Ethiopia, for an NGO called SIVA, and they do eye operations for cataract surgeries. I've raised quite a bit of money for them, and the photography really helped, and I thought I could use my photography in helping with the Ukraine crisis, both with the refugees and actually in the war zone. You've made four trips to the Ukraine. Could you tell us how you found yourself there in the first place? It first started off sitting at home watching what was enrolling and knowing I wanted to be part of the help and not part of the cheerleading squad back at home. I contacted a whole pile of different NGOs. Some were church-based, which I couldn't get in because I didn't have any church background, but I did get in with the Red Cross, the International Federation of the Red Cross. I made that happen myself by actually applying and then showing up on their doorstep. I had a month of employment with them, helping the refugees delivering people, delivering aid, food. And that was out of two different towns, Zoshin, Poland, and another town, that Dolobichov. And I worked directly with the refugees. And of all the trips, that was probably the most emotional part of the trips. And from that, it morphed into me going into the Ukraine, Lviv, for two different trips, a month each. And then this last trip was into Kiev, Kharkiv, Izium, Krematorsk, Konstantinivka, and that was a 44-day trip, and that was pretty extensive and pretty harrowing, I guess you'd say. So four different trips, were they four different organizations? The first was with the International Red Cross. The second two were for a volunteer and care center out of Lviv, working directly in a warehouse. And then the third was working for a group called Ukrainian Patriot, and that was more hands-on. There was warehouse work, and then there was delivery to the front line. The one I worked for in Lviv... Like I said, it was mostly warehouse work, but on the side, I was delivering goods to soldiers on the street and raising money for medical supplies, and my friends really came to bat. I bought a lot of medical supplies and delivered it right to the care center, and that went right to the front. Four different trips. Were there four different ranges of emotions? There sure was. The first, being involved with the refugees, it was like people at home. I, I pretty well saw my friend's mother, her, and her daughter there. It was just so close to the people at home, running with everything in a plastic bag. I left that place definitely impacted and probably left there very sad. And then the second couple trips made me mad when I saw Lviv being bombed and there was missiles landing next to us and 
just living off of generators and that made me mad. The fourth trip has left me pretty determined. I want to be tough like the Ukrainian people and they showed determination. So I understand that when the conflict began and people were fleeing the country that you were at one of the refugee reception centers on the Poland-Ukraine border. Yes, I worked with a few different people there. We were right in the customs area and we welcomed people. These people had been on the bus. Some of them had been traveling for five, six, seven days. The people hadn't showered. They hardly ate. They came in desperate. When they got to the Polish border, you could see a sense of relief. A lot of them cried. Our job was to make them as comfortable as possible. We'd make them coffee, deliver food, and then we'd get them onto a bus to the refugee center and try and help them during the, the dire times it was. Is that how folks were getting around? Was mostly by bus? For the refugees, the train systems were just totally overloaded. There were people showing up in six people in a car. There was buses coming through. All the border crossings, as I understand it, I got there a little later, but there was still the definite need. There was 1,000 people a day. There was like fifteen to 20,000 people a day at the border crossings. People said it was like a rock concert. These people lined up with everything they owned, and it was pretty hard on the customs, hard on the border patrol, and really hard on the volunteers too. But they made it work, and it was one of the biggest exoduses in Europe in many years. Poland really came to bat, really stood up for these people, and they're really good neighbors. I didn't realize, talking about the size of the country, Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe, second only to Russia. It's a big country. It's half the size of BC, and Canada's like 17 times bigger, which, I mean, we have an exceptionally huge country. But it is a pretty vast country, and it goes through lots of different kind of zones. The agricultural there goes from one border to the other. It's a quite a beautiful country. What kind of crops are we talking about? Canola, wheat. When I was there, the canola was in, and driving back one day, I thought it could have been in Saskatchewan. It was just beautiful canola as far as you could see. Really nice highways, and then you see a reality reminder that there's a, a red cross on a bus with the soldiers going home. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. The fundraising for stretchers, how did that come about? I met a Swedish man named Magnus. He really reminded me of a Shrek that he's this big giant, and he was training the Ukrainian people to be soldiers, and these were just everyday kids, really. And after spending time with Magnus, spent a few days with him, I asked if there's anything I could bring forward, what would you need? He says, we need stretchers and we need body bags. And at the time, they're using a rope thrown on the ground in a figure eight, and that's how they're dragging the bodies out because they didn't have stretchers. So I thought I'd focus on the positive. I raised money for the stretchers. I've got 102 to the front already, and I know that they've been used. What are the features and benefits of these portable stretchers that you're raising the money for? These portable stretchers are made out of the same material as like a backpack. They're really durable fabric. I've got a company in Lviv that actually sews them up. They can roll up and go into a backpack or into the back of a vest. They're totally mobile. They're not like a big stretcher with the big arms on it. They can go anywhere. They're reusable. They're durable. Two people can drag a body out or a wounded person out on it. You had mentioned, and I wanted to get back to it, you mentioned on one of your visits you were getting very close to the front in delivering supplies. Yeah, that was the last trip. It's definitely the the heaviest trip I did. Of the 44 days I was there, there was missiles coming in pretty well every day. So every day was dangerous, not for me, it's for the people there. They're not looking for me. But the last seven days, we were in mortar range. And every night you go to bed, you can hear mortars going off. 
and it becomes such a habit that you don't even go to the bomb shelter anymore. You just know that they're not looking for you in a house or a little bedroom. They're looking for bigger buildings or maybe military targets. But we got right to Kramatorsk. That was 15 kilometers from occupied zone, which is probably 25 kilometers from the zero line. But we could see Bakhmut burning. I'm not a soldier. I don't want to be a soldier. But that's as close as I'm going to get. On your Facebook page, you have lots of photos, and we have a link to it in our show notes. Most of the buildings look like they've been totally destroyed. How are people, and where are people living? There's lots of refugee centers. We actually worked on a refugee center. It was an old army barracks, and it was a hell of a mess. But people are staying in refugee centers, or with friends, or wherever they can find a place to live. Some of the towns were absolutely demolished. Like I don't think people realize how close it got to Kiev. The Russians were probably five kilometers away from the city. There were actually Russians in Kiev rolling around with flags up. If you go to the bedroom community of Bucha and Irpin, everybody's heard of Bucha. That's where all the atrocities were done. The Ukrainians were in Irpin trying to defend access to the city, and the Russians just bombed the hell out of that town, and that's right on the edge of Kiev, and it's going to take years and years to rebuild, whereas Bucha, they've rebuilt it. And I traveled through there. You see a few bullet holes. The street where you see all the tanks all demolished, that's been rebuilt, and they take pride in building their country back. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to build it back. There's been a lot destroyed, but they will build it back. As you mentioned, you were helping to deliver food and medical supplies to the city of Krematorsk, which was 15 kilometers from the border. What was involved there? What kind of food and medical supplies are we talking about? The medical supplies were like hemostats, any kind of chest seals, tourniquets. We had little first aid kits that had everything that would be needed for either shrapnel or bullet wounds. While I was over there, actually, I took a tactical first aid kit to know how to deal with that in case we had to deal with it. So it was basically first aid kits for the military themselves. So it morphed from a humanitarian to like a military help. As for the food packs, there was packs with chocolate, cookies, sweets, pastas, and it was a, probably like a eight pound bag. And we delivered those to the people in need. And there's a lot of old people that haven't evacuated that they've been there for their 80 years and they don't want to move, but there's no grocery stores or there's no food supplies. So we were delivering to the people that needed it. And the group I was with, the Ukrainian Patriot, they do regular visits there and they have repeat deliveries to people in need. And some of these people are really in need. I can only imagine all the heartbreaking stories that you have, but there's probably a few heartwarming ones as well. Maybe you could share a couple with us. They did outweigh the sad stuff. It's good to see so much positive in a war zone. There was a few things that really got me after delivering food to this one little town. It's totally destroyed. There's a few houses standing, but it's a town called Izium, and it was occupied, and they were liberated September 11th and 22. We delivered food and aid to these people. In return, they took us in for a home-cooked dinner, and it was just like moms and grandmas giving us a hug, sitting us down. The pierogi feast we had was incredible. They're so welcoming and so grateful, and there wasn't a lot of us that spoke the language, but still, they were just so welcoming, and they were appreciative of people from around the world that were willing to come and give aid, and they showed their appreciation. One of the heartwarming events that took place was uh, there was an old fella that he couldn't come down for his bag of food. It took him a long time to come to the door and then I realized the old fellow only had one leg and he was late for his food delivery so he brought us in and we had coffee with him and it was just like stepping into my dad's apartment 
but probably a tenth the size of dad's apartment. He had a little chair on a little worn out linoleum floor and all of his medicine was on the table and he had a little view out the window. It was then that I realized how little these people have and how it's been taken away from them. They don't live in big fancy places like we live. They live very humbly. And I remember walking in and the front door being a big metal door and then insulation all over to keep the winter out because they do have cold winters. The old fellow was all smiles and so happy and so welcoming. It wasn't like strangers coming in. It was just like old friends would come in and he was a real nice man. It was just an honor to be able to help him. Maybe we could go from one end of the spectrum to the other. Who was the oldest and youngest persons that you met along the way that left an impression on you? I'll start with the youngest. We had stopped in this town of Visium again, and the Ukrainian patriots, they focus on the therapy and helping people build back up. They had a dance therapy class, which I don't dance, and I dreaded it. I don't have a lot of young people in my life. But when I went there, when I saw how beneficial it was for these young kids, it was maybe 40 kids. And these kids are going home to no electricity, no flushing toilets. Maybe they don't have a roof on their house. They were all such happy, positive kids. And it was my first time there, but they knew some of these volunteers on a first-name basis. And you could see them going from being quite sad to when they started doing their hip-hop dance. These kids, they could have been kids here. It was quite rewarding to see that a bit of help was bringing these kids out of it. And they'll need a lot of counseling because what they went through is stuff that you could never imagine. But I could see that there was a little bit of light showing up on these kids. As for the oldest person, it was amazing. It was a 94-year-old lady. She'd just been taken from her home, and it was a town near Bakhmut. She said she was in the garden. They came to get her out to evacuate her. She looked at her garden, locked her front door, and she left her place. And when we talked to her, she said that she was quite comfortable. She goes, the soldiers are looking after her. There's plenty of food. And she's got faith in her boys, she said, because she knows she's going to go home. Her boys will win. That just shows you the will of the Ukrainian people. They're tough. We talked about the fact that you've traveled the world taking pictures while you've been working on some humanitarian projects. Were you taking a lot of pictures when you were near the front, for instance, in around Kramatorsk? Yeah, I had the opportunity to go out with a couple of military trainers, and I was out with a group of 14 guys, and I was part of a live fire exercise where I was in the group, and the group were firing their AK-47s, thrown hand grenades, and rocket-propelled grenades. It made it a lot more real, and I could see some of these guys, they were being trained. They weren't soldiers. They were probably farmers, and a couple of guys were very frightened. My job was to take photographs of them and then send to the unit commander at the end, and it was absolutely staggering. The sound, the adrenaline, it was scary. I could see these guys were frightened, too. Of these soldiers, I've been notified that over half of them are dead now, and that is absolutely staggering. When I was there, the people I was working with says, don't get attached to these people because it'll be, it'll be sad, and it's totally sad. One of the fellows, he couldn't speak English. All he could say was bang, 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 boom, 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 yum, yum, yum. What he was saying to us was after the grenades and after the shooting, he's going to take us for lunch. And he did. We went to a little town, Konstantinivka, and he was so happy to buy us lunch. He was helping the people that were helping him. Absolutely amazing people. And I just got note that he's been shot too. Magnus and Dougie, the guys doing the training, they're training through an interpreter. Their interpreter's been hit too. He has shrapnel in his spine. So now they're training these people with no middleman. It's English to Ukrainian. 
and they really need some support and really need some help. I'm hoping I can help one more time. When today in BC continues, Daryl Mackay talks about the resolve of the Ukrainian people and how you can help. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Daryl, I understand a restaurant that you visited regularly was bombed. It was bombed after I left, but it was a pizza restaurant. It was a family restaurant. I was staying in Kramatorsk with some soldiers, and they had a long day in the field. It was 25 degrees. They were hot and sweaty, so I went down with the other volunteers to grab some takeout pizza. We had a snack in the restaurant. Beautiful family restaurant. We grabbed our pizza, and the whole time we were there, there was air raid sirens going on and people just eating their dinner. Then we made our way home. After I got home, back to Canada, it was about two weeks after that, the place was bombed. It wasn't a military base. It wasn't a military hospital. I don't think it had any strategic value except for feeding people. The Russians sent one of those big Kinsol missiles in there, leveled it, and a small mall. They killed, I believe it was 14 people there. There was one woman of note. She was a poet from Ukraine, and she was quite famous. So they lost a little bit of their history there, too. And this was not a military place. And I have to stress that, that it's not military places being hit. It's a lot of civilian places. I saw a lot of apartment buildings destroyed that had no military value. With this bombing, my friend Magnus, he did get there, and I had already got 21 stretchers there. So of the 21 stretchers, I got to Magnus out of the 100 that he'd asked for. They were all used on that one job, moving rubble on the stretchers and also moving bodies out. There's probably two or three left that can be used. The rest were too covered in blood and there's no laundry facilities there. So that was a real eye-opener of how close the war was, really. It could have been us two weeks prior. I feel bad for the local people. It was a huge hit for the civilians and a huge hit for that little town. Daryl, you mentioned some of the civilians, especially the older folks, are determined to stay. Perhaps you could tell us about some of those very tough and determined civilians that you've met. The people there are very tough. We could learn a lot from them, really. There's three people in particular that I think about. Olga, she was a young woman. She might have been about 35, and she lived under occupation in Izium. And that was a town that was really treated poorly. She's a broken girl. Some of the stories that she went through under occupation, it was horrible, and I won't get into it. She is now teaching the kids the hip-hop. She's helping people rebuild. She's helping the old folks in the town rebuild their buildings too. She's a person of note for sure. Another person that I've got a lot of contact with now, and he's my fixer. He's a young fella. He might be 27. His name's Albert. He's from Mariupol, and when I met him, he introduced himself, I asked where he's from, he said Mary Opal, and I looked at him and his eyes went big and he just shook his head and it was kind of like saying, yep, it's all gone. That whole city's been destroyed and all of his family have either been killed or evacuated. His mother lives in Krakow. He can't leave as he's between 17 and 60 or whatever. This kid is amazing. He has helped me buy chest seals, hemostats, breathing tubes. He's helped me arrange the stretchers. Anything I need, this kid's there to help me. He knows that by helping me, I'm helping the people. And he's there at a text notice to help. He's bright. 
he's happy and he does have faith that they're going to win and there's no giving up. Another fella is Vlad. He's an IT worker and he was in Kharkiv and I talked to him about the invasion and he said they didn't see it coming. He said, yeah, there was 140,000 Russians on their doorstep, but when they crossed the border, it surprised everybody. He was in his apartment and there was mortars going off all over the place and he was on a telephone call trying to do business. He realized that he couldn't do business there because a lot of buildings were being hit in Argiv. So he ended up going to Lviv where he continues working today. He's a tough guy too. He just said he's got three levels of safety net. He says right now he's working out of his condo. If that gets blown up, he's going to go to the point of invincibility. And there are places people can congregate for internet, heat, food, warmth, if their places are blown up. And he says if the points of invincibility goes, he's got a car and he's got a generator and he's going to work in Ukraine as long as he can. He said that the Russians aren't going to win. He's going to make sure that he fights his fight. And that's pretty amazing to see that they're not moving. They're not running. They're fighting. You mentioned the young fellow that couldn't leave because he was between the ages of 17 and 60. Is that because they're required to fight for their country? The country's under martial law right now. There's laws in place that men cannot leave. So these companies that actually had contracts outside the country now have hired women and they go do the jobs outside the country, but the men cannot leave because they're needed for the reserves. Quite a few of my friends have been recruited and have been put into the military service. Tell us about some of those soldiers that you met and their morale. Tough people. I, I just can't stress enough how tough these people are. I went to one of the sports stores in Campbell River, Spinner Sports, really supportive people, and they gave me a whole pile of hunting neck warmers. After working in the warehouse in the daytime, I'd go out in the street and I'd see the soldiers walking down the street in their camo and their guns. And I'd walk up with my translator and tell them that I might have a couple of gifts that they could use. These guys were just tough men. They'd look at the bags and they'd take a look at the neck warmers. They'd put them on. They'd give me a hug, shake my hand, almost break my hand. They were tough. Their morale was up. These guys were home probably on leave And a few of the guys shook their hand and looked them in the eye. And I realized that these guys are not going to the factory. They're not going to the farm. They're going out there to shoot and kill people. It was a connection to really what was going on. It wasn't just hearing about a war or hearing that somebody had been shot. This was dealing with people that are actually in the trenches doing the awful stuff, the stuff they didn't want to do, but the stuff that they had to do. What is it like for folks in Ukraine trying to buy normal everyday necessities for those who have remained like I've read about runaway inflation and black markets. What have you seen? Living in the West in Lviv, the only thing that was really lacking was electricity. The Russians were knocking all the power plants out, but as for groceries and food, everything was readily available. Most restaurants ran by generator. You get to Kiev and the same thing there. Kiev was a booming place too, but as you head further East, there's not a lot of stuff available When you get to places like Krematorsk, Krematorsk was basically a ghost town. Izium was almost a ghost town. There was people living there, but very little food, very little supplies. Bakeries were empty. And then Krematorsk, the few places you could buy food. Uh, There's a couple grocery stores, but it was very limited. A lot of empty shelves. But these people are doing the best they can. And they were supplying for the people that needed it. With the bombing of the restaurant, that was probably one of three restaurants. So... All that's left now are like shawarma houses and no restaurants left in that town. As you got further east, there was nothing. Have you faced any challenges in your efforts to raise funds for these stretchers? No, actually. My friends have really come to bad. I posted it on Facebook. I didn't want to do a GoFundMe page, but the people at the care center, they knew that I could raise money. And they did ask me one time 
if I could raise some money for some first aid kits, which I put that on my Facebook and within two days I had enough money for the first aid kits. As for the stretchers, I just posted my story and talking about Magnus and I didn't ask for money. I just said stretchers are $37 a piece. I had money enough to buy the 100 stretchers in no time at all. So all 100 stretchers or it's 102 stretchers have been sent now. They should be in Kramatorsk. I've got money left over that will go to the next fundraising, whatever it may be. I know that Magnus is in dire need of camo covers for the soldiers' helmets and drop bags. So my efforts have gone from humanitarian to helping some of the military now that are in dire need as the humanitarian crisis seems to be slowing down, which is a good thing, but the soldiers still need help. They still need help supplying themselves with proper equipment. So the stretchers are now being delivered to soldiers and battalions. How can individuals who are interested in supporting your cause get involved or contribute? I am still raising funds. So on my Facebook page, one of the things that took me by surprise was the local interest and how people actually do care. One friend in particular, I get to see her every couple of days as I walk the dog. Peggy had asked for my email address and I gave her my email address and I thought this was just for contact while I was gone. For the first trip, she emailed me $1,000, which was amazing. She just said, please give this to some of the people in the refugee center that may need help. So I sorted this $1,000 into $120, $150 envelopes. When I saw a family in need that I could tell was really in dire straits, I'd give them this envelope. On the envelope, it said a gift from Canada. People were quite surprised. They didn't know what was in the envelope at first. And when they opened it up, a couple of them actually came up to me crying and said, thank you very much. And they were very gracious. The money was enough to get a hotel room for a couple of days in Poland and a few meals. It was just enough, hopefully, to bridge in between leaving their country and getting to their new refugee center or residence. It just blew me away how some of my friends really came to bat, and it there was no asking. There were some people that came up and helped without the request. What message would you like to convey to folks in BC listening to this podcast regarding the ongoing conflict in Ukraine? I want people to know that it's real. My contact with it has built it in my head that it is real, and I still have trouble grasping it. So I can understand people's distance and not really understanding. There was a fellow I met just a week ago, and he told me that he doesn't believe anything on the news. He says, is the war real? I can assure you the war is real. I've seen places blown up right in front of me. I've seen apartments blown up. I've seen people limbless. I've seen some pretty sad things. It it is real and it's too real. We can't forget this. These people disarmed their country on promise from the West for protection. And the least we can do is support them in some way. So if that's giving to an NGO or sending clothes or food, any kind of help at all, I think we do owe that to them. Did I hear you say you were planning a fifth trip back to the Ukraine? Yes, I'm going to play it by ear and see when I go. I plan to go in the middle of September. I'm going to have to see how things go with life at home and life with my family. But it's 95% chance I'm not going. But the more I talk to my contacts out there, the more I see they need help, the more the chances that I'm going to go again. It's going to be a tough decision, but it won't be the 44 days. It'll be a month. All I want to do is when this is said and done and the Ukrainians win, I want to be able to say that I was part of it and I helped announce. Daryl Mackay has been our guest on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blogpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google podcasts. 
Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com.